what was interesting is we found that the role of the CEO at its core is being an integrator across all of the dimensions I mentioned before. It's an integrator across, you know, aligning on a direction, mobilizing the organization, dealing with the board, et cetera, et cetera, stakeholders. You don't have to be great at everyone, but you have to be great at knowing what's important and when to dive in. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The melting pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The melting pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Scott Keller. Scott's a senior partner at McKinsey & Company, lives in California, walks the beach. COVID's been kind to him, he hasn't had shoes on for two years, he tells me. And also what doesn't come up in our conversation, but did when I was chatting to him after we'd finished recording, is that one of the things that helped him in his mindset around COVID and lockdown and not traveling is that he's one of those people that had decided to set himself a challenge and his challenge had been to visit every country in the world. The United Nations has 193. The travelers who set themselves this goal set a slightly higher target of 220. And in October 2019, he'd done Yemen. So he went into COVID and lockdown, not with a sense of relief necessarily, but that he had achieved something and that if he didn't travel for a bit, life would be okay. And so what did he do during lockdown? Well, he and his fellow authors decided, and we go into the methodology right at the beginning of the show today, they decided to look at what makes the best CEOs of this century the best? Does the 80-20 rule apply? What sets them apart? What do they do differently? What If you could reduce the things that all of the CEOs do, and Scott says, look, take the sort of Toyota five wise methodology and try and reduce what people do, what decisions they make to why they make them going right down to the core. And they got to six, they get to six things that the best CEOs do and have to master. And actually the analogy that Scott uses is the decathlon. No decathlete is the best hundred meter runner in the world or the best thrower of a javelin, but they have to not suck at anything and be pretty damn good at everything. And that's what they found about the best CEOs this century so far. So we dig into that. He tells us what the methodology is to pick them. He then talks about the six things that they found were the core and some great analogies and stories along the way. I found it fantastic to talk to Scott. I liked his first book, Beyond Performance 2.0 as well. So great to get a guest on who's written two books that I've really enjoyed reading and who I admire immensely. I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. My name is Scott Keller. I'm a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. I live in Seal Beach, California. 
have an Australian wife, so spent a lot of time down under as well. And looking forward to talking to you. Thanks for coming on. I'm a big fan of the books that you've written, Beyond Performance and CEO Excellence. Is it a requirement as a partner in McKinsey to write books? <laughs> Not at all. In fact, quite the opposite, I've found. I was, uh, th there aren't a lot of McKinsey books that people are familiar with beyond if you go all the way back to In Search of Excellence, which was, you know, one of the first and biggest selling of the, the blockbuster business books, but that was in the 80s. And since then, there's just, there's been a few, The War for Talent, How Remarkable Women Lead, but it's actually something you do out of your hide time, they call it. So on the side, nights and weekends, you're not given any reprieve on client service and doing your day job. What do you call it? Hide time. Hide time. It's out of your yeah, hide. Wait, I, I, I'm thinking the days you're hiding from work. No, no, okay. <laughs> right, if only. No, <laughs> no, yeah, no. We, which is weekends, weekends and sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how it works. And uh, you know, interestingly, McKinsey is a partnership, and it very much values generous collaboration with one another. And when someone writes a book, there's a little bit of a hey, are you trying to stand out as an individual and create your own brand name versus being part of the McKinsey Collective, if you will. And so sometimes you can get those little undertones where it's a somewhat of a negative. Um, not too much of that, but that's a little bit there as well. It can be. Okay. What draws you to write then, right? So if, if books by partners are rare, you've done two. Yeah. I mean, for me, my professional career has had some twists and turns. So I was a mechanical engineering undergraduate, did manufacturing management with Procter & Gamble for a little while, worked with the Department of Energy for a little while doing photovoltaic research, which is solar research. I then came to McKinsey because of that background, I did a lot of operational work. I had met an Australian while I was traveling and ended up proposing. Unfortunately, she said yes, and I married her. Moved down to Australia. And Australia, there was a lot more strategy work that was done. So I ended up doing a lot of strategy work. And the strategy work is pretty interesting because it's, you know, you've only got three, four players. And so you can use a lot of what you learned in business school to think about, you know, how does it work in an oligopoly and how does it work in different ways? And then I had my uh, second son was born and he was born with uh, special needs, profound special needs. And I took time off McKinsey. I thought I would leave and I ended up meeting a group of people and getting involved with a just a whole, whole different set of people than I would have otherwise had I not had my special needs child who were all about human potential and the development of human potential. So that changed who I was. And then the McKinsey I was going back to, I thought to myself, you know, it's a great place, but I don't want to just do the next strategy study or the next operation study. And that took me down a path of wanting to bring a lot of that from the field of human potential into my McKinsey work. So how do we sort of unlock you know, human potential at scale in the workplace, which turns out McKinsey is a great place to do it because we do work with a lot of the largest companies who employ most many people in, the, in their work lives. And so that kind of crusade to say, can my professional life have some level of service to it made me think like, you know, I can do studies with individual clients over and over and I can have a portfolio of clients. But if I can codify and share at scale through the written word, that's actually a much more high impact way to, you know, conduct my professional life, if you will. So that's what led me towards writing. I didn't know if I'd be good at it. I'm, you know, can, I'm not the one who can judge that. But yeah, that, that's what took me into the book writing realm. Uh-huh. I think you're good at it.
for what? For <laughs> I was saying to you before we started recording that I'm a fan of both books, but we were we were also chatting about one of the you said a vignette that you've actually or something that you saw you read elsewhere that ended up something that's in both books, which was around why you should get people to, I guess, own their own goals, own own their own objectives. Is that the best way to frame that before you tell that tale? Yeah, well, let me tell it, and then we'll kind of we'll talk about the best way to frame it. And, you know, we were talking earlier, I'm not a huge business book reader, and it probably is why my style of writing is is probably not overly similar to a lot of others, because I have nothing really to copy. I read a lot of heavy metal magazines, as we talked about, um, as my literary input. But I did read a book, someone recommended it to me, it was called Mean Genes, uh, G-E- NES version of genes, mean genes. And it was about just human psychology. And one of the experiments that they described in there was something social scientists do. And they get a big group of people in a room, call it, you know, 100 people just for the sake of this, this version of it. And they divide the room into two groups. There's 50 on one side, 50 on the other side. And one group they give a lottery ticket to, and it's got a number on it as a lottery ticket would. And that's going to be the number that, you know, if it gets chosen, they'll win something. On the other side of the room, the other 50 people, they give a blank piece of paper to and a pen. And they say, write your own number between one and X, and that's going to be your lottery ticket number. And then the researchers, you know, go back to the front of the room. They're about to pick the winning number. And they say, time out. We're going to send our grad students back out on the floor, and they're going to try and buy back your lottery ticket. So, you know, will you sell it for 20 pounds, 30 pounds, whatever it might be? And everyone's doing their kind of mental calculation on probability of winning versus how much they're being offered and the certainty of that. And when I read that, I thought, oh, I know where this is going. I know this where this is going. Because the question they were asking was, how much more, if anything, do you have to pay this group who you let write their own number, their own lottery ticket number, versus this group who were just handed the number? And I thought, oh, of course it's going to be you know, a little more for the group who wrote their own number because they're going to feel some, you know, emotional attachment to it because they wrote, it's their favorite number or it's their mom's birthday or whatever it is, right? And then I also kind of in, in the back of my mind as I was reading, I was like, you know, the economic rationalist would say there's no more probability of winning. So this is going to be one of those classic predictably irrational, you know, kind of things about human nature, right? So I was trying to kind of outgame as I was reading it. And what really struck me, though, is they said, we've never found in any of these experiments, and they've been done with different sizes of prizes in different geographies, with different demographics, they've never found in any of the studies that you have to pay anything less than five times more on average to that group who wrote their own number. And that blew me away. I mean, if, if there was a caricature of it, you know, my would have blown my hair up. And like, Oh, that's insane. That's crazy. But, you know, I thought about the client work I had done. And, you know, in those cases where we had explicitly created an opportunity, even when the CEO thought they knew the answer to the strategy or the direction of the company, and we allowed the top team the flexibility to really engage, really mix it up, really take ownership by, you know, being part of the authorship of a direction they had five times the energy at minimum to execute that direction, right? And so, you know, it became a vignette that I started to use often just to talk about the underlying, you know, dynamics behind why that's important. And even if it takes you twice as long 
to get to that answer by involving other people to get five times the commitment and the, the drive for execution. That's pretty good return on investment, right? Uh, I, I think it's incredible. Or, or even as you, when the executive team comes to that shared decision and then you say, okay, well, if that's true, then we shouldn't just tell the organization. We should involve the organization in, in, in coming up with the answer too because you want it to go all the way down at the front line where people feel like they're involved in the direction of the organization. Totally. And I'll, I'll tell you, Dom, where people, though, then start to get their heads scrambled a little bit around it is like, wait, are we then opening it up to the next level to kind of redo the strategy somehow? Or like, didn't we decide? And Or is this a democracy? And don't we get like lowest common denominator? And people start to go through all these mental gymnastics. You know, the way it tends to work in practice is it's, you know, you'll have the senior team and the CEO informed by a lot of input from the organization. They'll make the call and they'll say, here's where this organization is headed. And that decision has been made. And then that, the, the write your own lottery ticket application is, okay, now we go into our technology area or our business unit or our HR area, whatever it is. And we're going to talk about how is it that we bring the strategy to life? What is our role in the strategy? And that's what we write our lottery ticket around. And then that that keeps everything synchronized and aligned as it cascades down. And that tends to be the, the secret sauce that some fail to execute it that way. And it becomes a little bit more of a, a little bit more chaos. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not about, well, I was going to say, it's not about democracy. And I was just thinking about, you know, the UK version of democracy, it's representative democracy. You vote somebody in and they make decisions. So what else, when you, cause the, in, in the, the process of writing CEO excellence, you spoke to 70 odd CEOs in depth. You were looking at 200 CEOs and they're and what lessons you could learn from them. But you had a process about who were those 200, didn't you? Yeah, we did. I mean, I think if I go back to the, the genesis of it, we looked out there and we said, hey, you've got this research coming out that suggests that the CEO role is one of the most trusted roles now among leadership roles in the world. So, you know, politicians, media leaders, religious leaders, et cetera, like CEOs, their status. Now there's a caveat on this from the Edelman research, which it comes from, which is people were trusting their own CEO, not necessarily CEOs in general, but the, the mandate for, I want my CEO to get this right is stronger than ever. And COVID has sort of helped forge that and create that as, as have many, you know, kind of geopolitical and, and other factors. But you take that and then you also say that, you know what, when you actually look at the extent to which those CEOs who do great in the role, so those who are top quintile performers, you know, they're on average versus their peers, they're on average about 2.9 times more successful. That's that's interesting. But if you look across industries, the top quintile of performers create 30 times more economic value than the next three quintiles combined. Which is to say that the Pareto law is alive and well in the role of CEOs. Yeah, it's a hyper Pareto in this case. Yeah. And, and then you think about all the ethical, social, environmental impact that these CEOs have you know, stewardship over. And you say, okay, it's an important role, first of all. Secondly, you say it's a hard role to get right. And how do we know that? You look at the facts and you say, 
Well, 30% of Fortune 500 CEOs last less than five years. You look at the turnover rates, they're 38% up in the last 10 years. And you think about how many CEOs actually have a chance to break away from that, those mid-quintiles to that top quintile is a one in 24 chance during a CEO's tenure that their company breaks away. So important role, hard role. All right, what's available for CEOs to, to get sort of you know good advice? In your mind, because one of the things that just occurred to me as you were talking is I was thinking to myself, I wonder what the I wonder if you did the comparison with sports teams, whether the percentage of people who coaches in a sports team who have sort of breakaway performance is different. And then and then and then, and then a second thought was how many of the people do you reckon took a job that wasn't doable but had the capability? Right, because you, you you go you take the job as CEO. Assuming you're hired from the outside, you don't know, right? So you know that that proportion of CEOs who broke away, like beneath that, is there a similar number of people who were they just the job wasn't doable because the company dynamics was just such that you know nobody would have been able to turn it around. Yeah, look, it's I mean. Both interesting angles, great questions, and probably are in part answered by the methodology we used. Because we did look for what's out there, and you know, you've got individual biographies from CEOs, and those are helpful, but they tend to be, to your point, it's the unique kind of combination of the CEO's personality and, and makeup combined with the company situation, combined with the industry dynamics. It makes for a super interesting story but not super generalizable often yeah. because of that. Then you look at, again, back to your kind of question, the headhunters and the academics do a lot of work on traits. And it's sort of like, look, you need to be decisive. You need to be a great relationship builder. You need to be resilient, those kind of things, which are helpful in terms of as you're going through your career towards CEO, like how do I want to you know, develop risk-taking or whatever it is. But once you're in the role you know, they don't really tell you how to do the role well, necessarily. And then, you know, there, there's also a lot of, if, if you look at the Harvard work, there's there's work on how to spend your time, you know, 72% of your time is going to be spent working on weekends and 80% of your days and, you know, 70% of your time scheduled with people. So there's that kind of stuff out there. But so we looked at, and to get directly to answer your question, we said, okay, who would be the most successful CEOs of this century? Like, could you analytically determine that? Is it possible? And you get into all the questions you're asking, which is like, well, you know, are these impossible situations? What does that mean? So what we did, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, but we thought it was a pretty good methodology. We said, let's go just take the, the Forbes 2000 largest companies list. Let's figure out how many human beings have sat in the CEO chair this century for those companies. There's something around 2,400. Then we said, okay, we want to have CEOs who have been in the chair long enough that they've had to live with the consequences of their decisions and that they've earned the respect and the support of their stakeholders such that they can stay in that chair. So we said minimum six years tenure is what they would have had to have had. Yeah. That narrows the group down to about a thousand CEOs. Then we said, all right, you need to have performed from a financial standpoint. That's not the only thing that matters, obviously, but from a financial standpoint, and here's gets at your question. Did you outperform your industry peers when adjusted for geographic 
anomalies. And so what that means is you might have had a dud industry. I mean, if for all those who are looking to be a CEO, maybe you're going to a bigger company or maybe you're going to be a first time CEO, choose a great industry that's growing. Like that's, that's a smart thing to do because 55% of what's going to happen in your tenure is totally out of your control is what the numbers say. 45% is in your control based on what you do in the moves. But, you know, the endowment you get from your previous CEO, what's happening in the industry, et cetera, that's all stuff that just happens. So, but we tried to adjust for that and we tried to get to that, okay, versus other people in the same environment with the same challenges, et cetera. Where you now we got down to top two quintile performance. So you clearly performed above average. We got down to about 500 people then. We then did a screen on reputation. So ethical, social, uh, environmental impact. And we also did a screen on if you left your role, was your successor also on a good trajectory? So it wasn't all, you know, you held it together dependent on you and then you hand it over and the whole, the wheels fell off. That's not necessarily a leadership, right? That took us down to 143. And we felt like we had analytically determined, okay, these are 143. It might, it's not the necessarily everyone who's been a great CEO, but it feels like these were CEOs who you can learn something from. And it was a lot of men. And it was from a lot of few, few geographies. <laughs> um, what about 135 odd men? Yeah, too many, put it that yeah. way. And, uh, most of them white. Yeah, most of them white males, predominantly, you know, the majority were US based. So we look at that, we said, that is not the future of what CEOs need to look like. We added back then using the same criteria, but looking outside of the Forbes 2000. This also helped us get different ownership structures in as well. So there's not-for-profits in there. There are some family-owned businesses in there, et cetera. And we, um, we ended up building back to 200 that we felt had the right diversity, whether it's geography, whether it's industry, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's gender, and that was the group that we said, okay, let's study that group. We then said 200 interviews is going to take us a long time. <laughs> It'd be really hard to do. So just go to our statistics. And if we did 65, we would get 95% certainty, you know, is kind of what the stats say. So we aimed for 65 to interview in-depth 65 and really go for root cause on how they thought about and what they did in the CEO role. So that was, that was how we got where we were. And I think gets a little bit of what you're talking about on your sports question. I have no idea, but I bet there are some good analogies there. I, I think you answered that by saying 50, 55% of, of that is just not in your control. Just these are the circumstances you've got in your industry and that you've inherited. So, and then it's, uh, and then it's down to you. I think the methodology itself is fascinating. The fact that, that, that ended up with, 65 is the, the statistical number that you needed. Yeah, and we, we didn't know if we could even get 65 to do it. And uh, <laughs> How many of the 65 are current or former McKinsey clients? You know, I do have that number, and it's sitting around here somewhere. But clients, I don't know. But there are, you know, a lot of our colleagues, some people talk about McKinsey as sort of a CEO factory in a sense because there's a lot of our alumni who are CEOs of companies. So we tried to skew away from McKinsey alumni. We do have some for sure, but it's more like 10% of, of our samples. So we did try to adjust for that. In terms of McKinsey clients, I, I'm really not supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. You know, certainly some are, but also certainly some aren't. And we also wanted to make sure we had people who weren't McKinsey clients who were part of the, the sample. What was the most intriguing 
thing to your mind that came out of it? I mean, because, you know, you spend, when you're not reading heavy metal magazines, you know, you're spending all day, all day with, I guess, all day with CEOs. So what was it that you found it in the research when you did it, when you did the interviews and you analyzed it, that you thought that is a bit like when you were reading the Mean Jeans thing. It, like, what is it you thought, wow, that, I didn't expect that. Let me set it up by giving a little bit more methodology because it helps helps understand where this came from. Um, when you think about the CEO role, you've got a lot of elements to it, first of all. So you've got direction setting, you've got aligning your organization, you've got mobilizing your team, you've got engaging the board, you've got engaging stakeholders, you've got managing yourself, you've got those dimensions. That's already a lot to do, right? Now, overlay on top of that a whole set of paradoxes, which you have to manage. And what I mean by that paradoxes being, you know, you do have to deliver short-term performance while still investing in the long-term, right? You've got to be fact-based in your decisions while still moving fast enough not to lose out on opportunities. You've got to respect the past of your organization, but disrupt the future of your industry, right? You know, there's shareholder value you have to maximize, but you've also got to think of stakeholders and what's going to happen to stakeholders. You got to make quick calls, but you got to be have the humility to ask for help. Then there's all these sorts of things. Even you think about managing your people, you've got to build relationships with your team, but you have to keep enough distance to make the tough call that you're always objective. So you got all these roles, you got all these paradoxes to manage and then throw out, oh, and can you manage some geopolitical instability? Can you deal with uh, you know, the rise of cryptocurrency, digital transformation, supply chain resilience, you know, employee health and well-being? Like there's, it starts to kind of blow your mind in terms of, wow, that's a tough role. And I'm sure those listening who are CEOs would say, yeah, it is. So we said what would not be helpful is to try and like just list best practices, common practices that we saw. And that might even be impossible to do because there's just so much here. So we said we have to get to root cause. And by root cause, what we mean is it's the, the operations equivalent of, you know, in the Toyota production system, there's the five why methodology. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, an engine burns out on a machine and, and you say, okay, let's not just replace the engine. You say, why did it burn out? And the reason it burned out is because it didn't have enough ventilation. Well, why didn't it have enough ventilation? Because it was too close to the wall. Okay, why was it too close to the wall? Because that's where someone happened to put it. Okay, great. Well, now we'll move it away from the wall, replace the engine, and you've gotten to the root cause, right? And it's going to work. So we used a technique called laddering, which comes from social psychology. And it's all about understanding the motivations, why, 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 why someone did something. So it takes you down to the mindset, right? And so we looked for the mindsets that sat beneath what, people did because from one mindset spurs you know kind of a thousand behaviors if you will um, and maybe just to bring that to life because I love this little analogy I think it, it speaks volumes the Manchester shoe company allegedly in the 1800s sends two salespeople down to Africa right and two telegrams come back one telegram says hopeless situation no one wears shoes <laughs> another telegram comes back from the other salesman glorious opportunity no one has shoes yet (laughs) and you can imagine a thousand behaviors stem from just a different mindset towards that situation right so we looked for the mindsets that was beautiful because we when we spent two or three hours with each ceo just understand well why did you do that how did you think about that and i would say at the core then to answer your question directly 
more so than I ever, ever imagined, this group of CEOs had a level of humility that is completely the opposite of the archetype of this sort of, you know, alpha CEO who sort of take charge and lead ahead and all that sort of thing. So just to bring it to life, Reed Hastings told a story about where he learned his leadership philosophy. Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And he said when he was a young engineer, before he started Netflix, you know, he was working hard. He would go in, spend all day at work, stay up late at night, leave at four in the morning, and he'd go through a lot of coffee. And so his workstation would be covered with coffee cups. Now, after he got a little bit of sleep and would come back in, typically the coffee cups had been cleaned and put away and he could get new ones out. So one night he goes home or early morning as it is, and he's got busy brain, right? And he's just, he's got to get back into the office because he's got to keep on working on the program. So he comes back in the office and he goes in the kitchen to get some cups. And there's someone there cleaning all of his other cups from the previous day. And he looks up and he sees his CEO doing it. He's like, what are you doing? And the CEO looks at him and goes, you know what, Reed, you do so much for us. This is the least I can do for you. Granted, <laughs> yeah, it's a small company environment. And, you know, but that Reed talked about how for him, that was huge. And the CEOs we spoke to, they had a level of humility about them, about the role. So Lilac Asher Topilski, who is the CEO of the Israeli Discount Bank, it's an amazing story. She talked to us about how every time she walked in her office, she'd look at the chair and she'd say, you know what? People will come in today and they will talk to that chair. I sit in that chair now. It makes me powerful. Someone else will sit in that chair tomorrow. And she just always keep that in mind. Ajay Banga from MasterCard talked about how, you know, when you take over a company, it's 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 not about you're, you're the captain of the ship and you want to put your name on the back of it. It's the Ajay Banga boat. You know, some founder led CEOs, they should have that responsibility and the authority to do that. But for him, he's like, no, we're just we're just caretakers of the ship. Hopefully we can put in a better running engine, maybe change a few sails and then we hand it over to the next skipper. That servant leadership mentality that they all had where it was it truly was about how it's not about how do I be successful? And this is what struck me. And it struck me even in my own counseling of CEOs. It's not about how do you be successful? It's about how do you put the conditions in place for others to be successful? And our CEOs really, like that was the mindset sitting beneath what they were talking about, which, which struck me as different than some CEOs I had worked with and something I hadn't ever clearly articulated in my own mind. So that would be for me the, the thing that struck me most. Well, it's interesting because that sort of mirrors, well, servant leadership, but it also mirrors Jim Collins you know, when you when I listen to him speak about writing in search of excellence, where the team, the team saying, look, there's something here that there's a humility here that the CEOs of these businesses have. And certainly other people in the past have then said, well, we're not sure that's true. You know, look at some other CEOs who are successful. But it's fascinating that that's come out in your, you know, that viscerally that the most striking thing that you have found speaking to these people is profound humility. Yeah, I didn't expect it. And it was so, and it all crossed the board too. So, which which wasn't that they weren't, didn't have confidence and weren't willing to make calls and be bold and all that sort of thing. But it was all against that backdrop of the ultimate reason why it wasn't about them. It was of service to others and a bigger, bigger cause. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's, if, if you spoke to 
Somebody was saying to me the other day that, uh, you know, people, that when they ask school children, what do you want to do? You know, they, they want to be rich and famous, be a celebrity or be a CEO. And I don't think when they say to the researchers, I want to be CEO, that they're thinking about that humility. They are thinking actually that CEOs are celebrities and that this is all about them and not about in service of their people. Just on what you just said, I think it's fascinating because this is another thing that struck us. This probably wasn't quite as like blow your hair back insight, but it was definitely worth mentioning here. When we did our list, you definitely had people, you know, Bezos made the list, Musk made the list, Buffett made the list, Zuckerberg made, like you had those names, right? But in our 200, you had a bunch of names that even us in the business community and having worked with a lot of CEOs, they were just not names we had heard much of or some of them we didn't even we hadn't heard of them at all, but others were just, you know, in in your general person, if you say, hey, have you heard of you know Masahiko Otani, you know, from Shiseido? And a lot of people maybe haven't, right? In the same way they've heard of Bezos. We had so many CEOs of that, and we're trying to figure out, well, why is that? Why is it that, that actually the most successful aren't necessarily these headliners? And and what we came to was the analogy, you know, if we said to you, hey Dom, who is the greatest athlete of all time, right? Now, depending on your geography, you're going to choose someone. Who would you choose? I'm curious. I, the, Steve Redgrave comes to mind, rower, four times Olympic. Yeah. And the reason I pick him is because the dedication, right? I don't think there's a future beyond being an Olympic rower where you make lots of money, right? And you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning every day. And you do it once and you get to the Olympics and you get a gold medal and then you do it again and then you do it again and then you do it. And I don't think, I know from my own fitness experience, it doesn't get easier. It's just still just as miserable. You know, five o'clock in the morning is as miserable on day in year 12 as it was on year one. And so there's a, there's a persistence and a doggedness there that I admire. Yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't doing it for, and he wasn't doing it for the money. So, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, and part of that is your definition of, of greatness coming through too, that you're revealing and saying that. And, you know, whether it's him, well, you know, a lot of people, people gravitate is like, you know, Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, Serena Williams, Pele, Usain Bolt, you know, these are all names that if you're in the U S Tom Brady comes up a lot nowadays uh, for us. And, if you did the same, like who technically, like what would be the analytic way to get to the greatest athlete of all time <laughs> to do kind of what we did with CEOs? Yeah. You'd probably end up with someone called Ashton Eaton. Ashton Eaton, very few people have heard of. I can kind of see it on your face. You're like, who's that yeah. guy? Who's Ashton right? Eaton? So Ashton Eaton, well, let me set it up by saying that, you know, if you go back in time, you go to 1912 Olympics when Jim Thorpe won the decathlon the king of Sweden, King Gustav, I think the fifth or something, said to him, sir, you are the greatest athlete of all time. And at that time, anyway, fast forward to 2017, Ashton Eaton is someone who completely dominated as a decathlete, completely like set the world record four times. Uh, he's one of three people in history who have got back-to-back -back Olympic golds, four back-to-back -back world championships. But analytically speaking, you would say, you know, probably he was the greatest athlete of all time if you were to kind of apply a similar methodology to what we did. But no one's heard of him. How does that happen, right? Well, he's a decathlete. 
he's not the fastest in the hundred meter. He's really good. He's one of the fastest hundred, you know, people in the world, but he's not the fastest. And so what was interesting is we found that the role of the CEO at its core is being an integrator across all of the dimensions I mentioned before. It's an integrator across, you know, aligning on a direction, uh, you know, mobilizing the organization, dealing with the board, et cetera, et cetera, stakeholders. You don't have to be great at every one, but you have to be great at knowing what's important and when to dive in. And so uh, another analogy that I've used that I think is, is really helpful is it's like being a ship's captain. And so if you're on a sailboat, you're constantly looking at the environment and it's some, sometime you're gonna have to worry about boat balance. Other times you're gonna have to worry about the like, sail trim, which is the, you know, how efficient the, uh-huh. the sail is in the wind. And you, you, there's actually a bunch of things you have to all manage at once, but you're gonna tend to things differentially based on what's happening in the environment around you. Very similar in the CEO role. So it's, it has much more to do with being an orchestra conductor than a lead violinist, right? And uh, so that's why you get these names that are, that are more the Ashton Eaton types versus the Serena Williams types. And also, if Ashton Eaton wanted to be world famous, if that was in his makeup, he probably, if it was important to him, he probably would have done. Do you, do you know what I mean? That, you know, right, you know, it is in, it is in Elon Musk's makeup to be a showman and being a showman isn't a necessary characteristic is what you're saying is you don't need to be a showman to be a very successful CEO. If you are, then that's fine. And people might write about you because they're desperate to write about people if you're being successful. Yeah, I think that's true. I I think though the nature, like here's where the analogy is different though. It's sort of, if Ashton Eaton was that type, he probably wouldn't have chosen to be a decathlete in that case. Right. (laughs) Because you're only going to go so far if it's that you really want to be, famous you know so in but in what i think is interesting about the ceo role is you do have this wide range where you do have the the flexibility or the liberty to kind of push for one profile or another and i do think a lot of ceos don't they push for an ashton eaton profile versus pushing for a choose your favorite athlete that everyone's heard of profile and that was what was interesting right and those multiple things you need to manage are 10 10 things eight things you know uh we really pushed ourselves hard on what is the irreducible core of the CEO role that is practical and helpful. You know, if you look back at like Peter Drucker, he was famous for a lot of things, obviously, but when it comes to the CEO role, he said, look, the role of the CEO is to define the meaningful outside, define and manage the meaningful outside. And so he made this juxtaposition of inside and outside. Okay. That's two things. It's a little broad. It doesn't really help you manage it, etc. You go back to like Henry Mintzberg, who was in the sixties as, the first one to really study CEOs. He followed CEOs around for weeks on end, multiple of them. And he reported back, there's like 10 roles that a CEO has. And, you know, they were roles that are, you know, you're a liaison, you're a spokesperson, you're a figurehead, you're a disturbance handler, da, da, da. Laundry list, not super. So we tried to get to, okay, what is the irreducible core that's practical and helpful? We couldn't get it less than six. Okay. Okay. And our six were direction setting. That's, Vision, strategy, resource allocation, got to do that. CEO has a role in that for sure. It's organization alignment. That's culture, organization, design, and talent. CEO has a role in all that. Parts of it that can't be delegated. It's mobilizing your leaders. That's around composition of the top team, effectiveness of the top team, and operating rhythm of the top team. Only the CEO can set that. Board engagement, you know, it's the relationships you have with them, the capabilities that you're looking for on your board, and it's how you run your board meetings. 
stakeholders. That's where this meaningful outside comes into play. So definitely taking that darker definition. And you're the one who does define that meaningful outside. You determine how much time you'll spend there. And you're the one who kind of chooses how you engage with that outside, grounded in your purpose, what types of interactions you have. And when things go crazy and you have a crisis, how do you keep perspective? So that's the, the fifth piece of it. The last one is just your personal effectiveness. How do you manage your time and energy? What's your leadership model? How do you maintain perspective? So those six things, and a lot of CEOs, when we first shared that model back to them, they were like, oh, this is, I wish I had this when I started. Others said, <laughs> others said, that's too much. It just feels like too much stuff. But then when we said, well, what would you take out? They couldn't get anything out. So, so we felt good about that we got it there. And this is where that sailing analogy, I mean, if you really look at sailing and you say, what are the fundamentals of sailing that have not changed since, you know, human beings first put that wood in the papyrus reed on the Nile, you know, you've got six things. You've got course made good, which is how do you adjust to get most directly from A to B. You've got something called centerboard position, which is correcting for sideways drift. You've got sail trim, which is getting the sail in the most efficient position, like we talked about. Boat balance, don't let it tip. Boat trim, which is keeping the boat level. And then you've got how do you manage yourself as a as kind of the skipper of the boat, not drinking too much rum, motivating your crew, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, looking at the horizon. So those are fundamentals that are timeless, right? There's a bunch of timely things you have to deal with um, in terms of you know modern contemporary sailing versus before, where you might run into like a a plastic island or something like that, you know, that wouldn't have been there, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. But those fundamentals are timeless. We think the irreducible core we define is timeless. And no matter what timely issue you're dealing with, you're going to need to set direction around it. You're going to need to align your organization around it. You're going to need to mobilize your leaders. You're going to have to talk to the board about it. You're going to have to deal with stakeholders on it. You're going to have to manage yourself in relation to it. So that's where we got to. Mindset plus those six. Were people amazing at all six or did they just, was the difference between that top quintile and the rest? Was it, was that they somehow, they gravitated towards a few of those because of their personality? Yeah. So it goes a little bit back to our decathlete analogy, which is they weren't bad at any of them. Right? Oh, yeah. You can't suck at any of them. Yeah. I mean, uh, Johan Tiss, who's the CEO of KBC, which is a, a Belgian bank assurer, he, he had the quote, he said, I'm good at a lot of stuff and perhaps I can do one or two things very well, but I'm not the best at it all, but that's not important. What's important is that I can balance everything together. You're not supposed to just manage one dimension of the framework. That was his kind of what he said to us. Um, and I thought that really summarized it well. But what was, what was interesting though is, this is where the mindsets really came into play. So on each of those six dimensions, we were looking for, are there common mindsets on each of the six that sort of underpin the choices that these leaders make that, that are truly in common? And we did, that's what the book's about, is the six mindsets that separate the best from the rest. So on direction setting, let me just give you an example. All right, and I'm gonna stick with, I don't know why maritime themes are, are striking me right <laughs> now. Um, so, so you're handed the keys of like a cruise ship that's worth $30 billion and it's got 300,000 passengers on it. Okay, those, they're your employees, so to speak, or your, your customers. You're handed those keys and it's like, okay, you're now captain of the ship. It would be easy and rational to have a mindset of, okay, discretion is the better part of valor. First of all, do no harm. I'm just gonna like make sure we're, we stay on course and, and make, make some adjustments as we go. 
That would not be a silly thing to do, an irresponsible thing to do. That would not be what our CEOs would do. Our CEOs would grab those keys and they would immediately say, where are we going and can we go somewhere better? How fast are those engines running and can we get them running higher? They, they would go to, hey, fortune favors the bold versus discretion is the better part of valor. And they would have a bold mindset. And you know that's easy to say, but it translates in vision, strategy, and resource allocation in really profound ways. I'll give you one example just, to, just as a teaser here. Because I, I, this also struck me as, as incredible, and I, I'll, I'll, keep it, I'll keep it short for us. Um, if you think about the vision of a company and you take over a CEO, it seems like to aspire to be number one in your industry would be a smart thing to do if you're not there. None of our CEOs thought about that. None of our CEOs, it was about beat the competition. It wasn't win the game, it was reframe the game. And let me tell you what I mean. I'm going to use a quick South African sporting analogy because... A lot of people have seen the film Invictus or they're just rugby fans and they're familiar with it. But I feel like this was the perfect illustration. And then I'll give you the business examples, you know, in that film. And, you know, the film is based on a true story. Nelson Mandela has the captain of the rugby team into his office, Francois. And he says, Francois, how is it that you get the best out of your team? And Francois says, well, sir, I lead by example. And then Mandela says, that's right. That's, that's a great way to get the best out of your team. And he says, but Francois, how do you get your team to be greater than they think they can be when only greatness will do? And Francois doesn't answer that question in the film because the rest of the film answers the question. And essentially what Mandela helped Francois do is he reframed why the Springboks were competing in the 1994 or 95, I can't remember what it was, uh, World Cup, was not to win the World Cup, that wasn't, that was, that's not the game they were playing. They were trying to unite a nation through winning the World Cup, right? A much bigger canvas, a much bigger playing field. And so when Ajay Banga took over MasterCard, it wasn't beat Visa. It was, wait, 80% of transactions in the world happen through cash. Let's kill cash. He reframed what that playing field looked like. You know, when, when Mary Barra took over GM, you know, it wasn't all about how do we win in automotive? It was about how do we transform transportation? You know, Diageo, it wasn't about let's win in beverages. It was about let's win in consumer goods. So there's always this reframe that happened that is part of this bold mindset. And similar things could be said on how does it translate to strategy, resource allocation, super interesting stuff where it was like, oh, I wouldn't have, I would have thought boldness was let's be number one or number two in our industry kind of thing, you know? I think that reframing is fascinating you were talking about the the rugby and james kerr wrote a great book about how the all blacks became the greatest winningest team of all time and one of the things for them was that the prime minister of new zealand went to visit them and said you're not playing rugby for the all blacks you you are a representation of your country and that whole you know same thing with mandela very much so actually it looks like it looks like france are doing the same thing because the rugby world cups in france next they've just won the six nations and for them, lots of their players come from inner city, rundown areas. And so it's, you know, the sort of reinvention of France through the potentially France looking to win the World Cup on the back of winning the Six Nations. It can be hugely motivational for the whole country when you get it, when you get it right. And in, in this case, it's the 30,000 people on the cruise ship, right? Much better to say, let's do, re let's kill cash than to say, let's beat Visa. <laughs> 
you know, yeah, one totally. sounds emotional and the other just doesn't sound very interesting at all. And combine that with a write your own lottery ticket version of, okay, how can you play a role in killing cash and let you write your own lottery ticket around that? And you've got even more motivation. You can see how these things layer on top of each other to be, you know, you create this unstoppable force, if you will. That's brilliant. Look, you've brought us all the way around full circle. So I've got a question for you. What, and this might relate to the book or it might relate to your, any aspect of your life, I guess, but what is it, Scott, that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Yeah, look, we've actually already talked about it, Dom, uh, because I, I do think this, uh, this insight around success isn't about, well, that, that your own success and putting the conditions in place for others to be successful actually in the world of paradoxes collapse into one and the same at the end of the day and in life in general. And I found that whether it's my church group that I work with or whether it's, you know, in the workplace and, you know, if I, if I would have been able to act out of that mindset through my entire career, I feel great about my career, but I, I just feel like I would have been even higher impact in my career, you know? And again, not that the point is that I'm higher impact, it's that I would have unleashed higher impact in others. And in doing so, I would have been higher impact. And I just think that's a beautiful thing about life. Right. And so for me, that's that, that, we covered that. Yeah, it's a bit like happiness. You can't actually get happy. You just end up being happy as a result of other things that are tangential. And you talked earlier about your book and how your how writing the book was about having more impact. Yeah. And not about being not not about being a world famous author. Yeah, oh totally. Totally. And I, and I feel like this, this new book, I kind of pinched myself because of my my special needs son is uh, we had him twenty years ago roughly and you know, I do feel like this book, it's wonderfully become a bestseller over on these shores where it's been released. You know, the Wall Street Journal's named it a bestseller last week in its first week released and so did the USA Today, so did Publishers Weekly. And so it's getting out at a scale that is, you know, pretty big scale. And I feel like, wow, what a beautiful crescendo to 20 years ago when I felt like, you know, if there's some way to get knowledge in people's hands that helps unlock human potential at scale, this, this book's actually a real nice manifestation of that, right? And that feels really good, right? Very good. And then the book we mentioned, so you, you know, your book is CEO Excellence, New York Times bestseller, available from all good bookstores. Your earlier book was Beyond Performance 2.0. And then the book that you mentioned was Mean Genes, From Sex to Money to Food, Taming Our Primal Instincts. Doing your primal instincts, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's fantastic, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. Hey, thank you, Dom. Great chatting to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.